Investors Chronicle. Companies and market show Thursday the 19th of May as we record. On today's show, our result of the week is Vodafone and BT. Arthur Sants joins us to talk through those. We're also talking inflation and supply chain worries. Are we heading back to the 1970s and what can the Bank of England do about it? And then we're having a look at private equity, given the rampant appetite for all things UK publicly listed companies. All that and more. Let's start the show. Companies and Market Show. Hello, listener. Welcome back. Welcome back. Uh, exciting, exciting show for us because everyone's uh, in the studio here in person for the first time, uh, which is nice. Julian, you've made your way from made your way down from Devon. I have. Yes, it's a great pleasure to be here in the bowels of the FT. What do you think of the studio? It's very much sort of Battlestar Galactica, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> quite, quite like. Uh, Alex Newman, hiya. Hi, John. How are you doing? Yeah, really good. Thank you. Arthur Sense joining us. Hi, Arthur. Hi. Hey, guys. Welcome back. And Dan Jones talking us through our topics later. What have we, what have we got coming up today? Uh, we've got a few things today. We've got the joint result of the week, which is Vodafone and BT. We have got uh, perhaps some inevitable chat about inflation, supply chains, what have you. And then uh, we're talking about the uh, increasingly frequent private equity raids on UK PLC. Beautiful. Beautiful. Looking forward to that. Well, before we get to that, though, I'm going to go through my little my little news roundup of the week that's been. Uh, let's start with the markets. With the US shares on Wednesday recording their biggest one-day drop since the early pandemic. Uh, one of the biggest fallers was retailer Target, which dropped 25% uh, after it warned on profit margins due to rising costs. Uh, Walmart similarly downbeat the day before, losing 11%. It left the S&P 500 down 4% for Wednesday. Meanwhile, the Dow was down 2.5% and the Nasdaq down 4.7% as tech continued to to, uh, sell off. European market losses are there too, but slightly more muted than the US so far this week. Uh, Some inflation stuff, a 40-year high for both consumer price inflation and retail price inflation in the UK. Uh, CPI hit 9%, RPI 11%. Andrew Bailey, governor of the Bank of England on Tuesday, insisted the central bank couldn't have done more. Neil Wilson, the writer of our Markets Roundup, disagrees rather strongly. Don't know if anyone's read his uh, his newsletter this week. Yeah. I have, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Start, as you say, stern, stern words. For P45, Andrew, really. I think, was mentioned. It was. It was. It was. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Elsewhere, the European Commission announced a €300 billion Euro plan to wean the continent off Russian gas by boosting the amount of renewables generated. Uh, The strategy has increased the target for renewables production to 45% from 2030, up from 40% currently. It pledges to speed up the approvals process for for projects and set new targets for domestic solar, wind and hydrogen production. A few companies' updates. On Monday, Made.com shares plunged 15% to hit a record low as management slashed sales and profit expectations for 2022. The online furniture retailer is uh, minus 64% year-to-date. Vodafone has a new shareholder. Emirates Telecommunications Group has purchased around £3.3 billion of Vodafone shares to give it a 9.8% stake. Vodafone, one of our results of the week, coming up in a few moments. And Greg said that full-year expectations remain unchanged despite sales struggling in bigger cities and increasing cost challenges. Uh, shares fell half a percent. Online, we have updates of plenty of other companies, including the likes of National Express, Life Science, Watch to Switzerland, Burberry and SoftBank. Lots to get your teeth into there. And finally, a little closer to home, the IC's veteran 
economist Chris Dillow has sadly, uh, for us if not for him, retired this week. He sat down and spoke to Mary McDougall in Wednesday's IC Interviews podcast about the lessons he's learned from his 35 years in the industry, uh, what country music tells us about the US economy, and much more. It's a great discussion, so please go and seek it out. It'll be on the same feed as this podcast, and we'll play a little of it at the end of the show as well. Thanks, John. Yeah, we are going to start, as we said, with uh, telecoms. Historically, not the most exciting sector, a sector that's been in structural decline, perhaps, but uh, despite or maybe because of that, there's been plenty of news flow lately, I think it's fair to say, um, across Europe and the UK as well, largely in terms of BT and Vodafone, in terms of stake building, as you alluded to just then, John, which we'll get to in a minute. But we'll start by looking at the results themselves. Both companies reported in the past few days. Arthur, you uh, are our telecoms man. You've covered both these results. What, what What's the t- takeaways we can can get from them. Yeah, so I'll probably start sort of chronologically. So BT's results came out first in the week. The story of BT is pretty well known at this point in that they have been investing loads of money in OpenReach, which is their um, fiber optic network across the UK. And it's expensive. And they last year, they spent over 5 billion on CapEx. And these sort of CapEx figures are expected to stay pretty high for the foreseeable future. The sort of concern with BT in the current environment is that sort of investing in open reach is expensive from sort of raw material perspective and also paying people to do it and as everyone knows sort of wages are going up although Andrew Bailey's trying to keep them as low as possible and that's going to sort of increase the cost of probably doing these installations um, going forward and then the other concern I think sort of, I think Numus made this point in one of their notes is that BT is to sort of generate returns on this open reach investment is going to want to push up prices a lot. And they'll probably justify that by being like, oh, you're getting way faster connectivity. And then when they move people over from the sort of old copper wires into their fiber optics, they're expecting to sort of increase prices quite a lot. But I guess the concern in the for them now is that how much will they be able to push through those price rises if there is this big cost of living crisis? The big difference between BT and Vodafone is that BT is basically a British-only company. Obviously, they have BT Sport as well, but they've actually just signed a um, joint venture with Discovery. Um, BT Sport was like losing them quite a lot of money paying for these expensive Premier League rights. They've also sort of um, talked about uh, automation. They have an AI chatbot called Amy. So as customers, you can go and um, talk to a computer instead of a person, which hopefully might save them save them some money. But... Everyone, all customers unanimously, I think, love chat. Yeah, and I'm, I'm, I think most of us are probably quite skeptical. And this, yeah, so they've sort of been trying to cut costs elsewhere in the business, and the big thing is the BT Sport, Sport joint venture. Vodafone is like slightly different from BT. Vodafone is trading on a higher um, multiple, I think it's on like 11, whereas BT is on around eight. Um, part of this sort of I think, justification for this multiple is Vodafone's a much more international business. BT's it's got a global business which isn't doing that well, but the majority of its revenue, like the large majority, is generated in the UK. Whereas Vodafone's got like a big German business, and um, the margin in the German business is like over forty percent. Whereas in the UK, Vodafone's margin is in the twenties, and it, Vodafone's also got this big African business that's actually growing quite quickly, and they have like a fintech app as part of their African business, whereas BT is not really growing that quickly. Vodafone does actually have some growth markets and some other higher margin 
businesses elsewhere in Europe. But Vodafone's under a little bit of pressure. I think the Italian and Spanish businesses' revenue's been slipping back the last few years. They're pretty competitive markets. And like with telecoms, it's just like very hard to differentiate yourself. So if there's like a lot of competition in your market, you can only really compete on prices. And there's been a they've just so they've got a new activist investor called Sivian, um, a Scandinavian product company that took a stake in Vodafone um a little a few eh, month or two ago. And there's some reports that they've been putting pressure on the Vodafone board to sort of speed up some of its sort of restructuring. They had a bid for their Italian business, eleven billion pound bid for the Italian business, but um they rejected it. But there's some thought that they might try and sell off maybe the Spanish and the Italian businesses. And then there's also other reports that they're going to merge with three. I think this which would put together like the third and fourth largest uh, telephone providers in the UK, which is kind of like where this is industry is going is that there's so much competition. It's pretty hard to compete when the products are all the same. So there will be some consolidation. Julian, I'm going to bring you in because you've been clanging in the background, which I'm going to pretend Sorry, is, yes. is you wanting to uh, <laughs> is you wanting to to make a point. What, what's know, your it's, it's really horrible isn't view? It? Um, <clears throat> so yeah, it's, it's an interesting one because um, I wrote about this before. I think Arthur took it up, and um, Vodafone particularly is quite interesting in that in terms that they do have markets where they can protect their their margin to a certain extent. Uh, partic- as you pointed out in your article, it's Germany where they seem to be most profitable in terms of what they're doing and if any, uh, those of us with longer memories will remember the, the disastrous takeover of Mannersman that um, Vodafone did in order to to build that business which they then had to write down for about seven or eight years afterwards but uh, yeah there is no there is no movement on prices I mean yeah we can all just change contracts if we don't want to stay with them um, you know I think most of us at least do one change a year and uh, they don't have a lot of flexibility. And uh, yeah, BT in some ways is 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 a classic example of that. Although I did want to add that um, they have got an easier ride from the regulator on their pricing for the new five fiber broadband network. So they they apparently did get a better deal than many people were expecting. So the pricing could could hold up, but um, uh, they have to spend so much money just burying cables in the ground. It's uh, yeah, you know, whatever it looks like in the long run, they're going to have to be, they're going to spend an awful lot of money on it. But um, I suppose the the obvious sort of question, bringing this all together, we'll get to the activists. We'll come back to them in a minute. But in this kind of environment, you know, where you've got a, a you know sclerotic but maybe relatively stable business, which you know compared to most things right now looks quite attractive. You know, share price doing single digits a year. Most people snap your hands off for that right now. But but in an inflationary environment, you know, we've talked about these prices and the ability to, you know, maintain margins. You know, are these are these the kind of companies you might want to look at? Is, is the jury still out there? You know, it's a difficult one given all the various markets in which they operate, right? Yeah, well, I think they've also both got pretty decent dividends. I think Vodafone was like 6% yield and BT was in the 4% yields, which are pretty good. And I think there was some discussion around whether BT should not have its dividend and be investing more in improving the business. But at the moment, I think any investor would be um, pretty pretty pleased that they've got their four percent dividend in intact because at least you know you're gonna you're gonna get something. So um, and actually, I think they they've held up pretty well initially in the sort of tech sell off. Both of those companies share price came out quite a lot. They've come down a bit later, but maybe that's indicative of investors sort of looking for more value businesses. And although prices can't go up a lot, like 
people still need telephone contracts and broadband. Like it's mm. going to be one of the last things that people are going to going to cut out of their expenditure, isn't it? And also, you can you can also imagine that BT will find more costs to cut to come in. There's a, a guy who lives down the road from me who used to work for them, and uh, he told me that they managed to lose a hundred thousand employees without a single uh, forced redundancy. <laughs> this kind of shows you there's plenty of you know, there's plenty of fat there to cut, and there might be there might be some more that they can skim out of it. So the the other point I was, or point it occurred to me as you were as you were talking just then, Arthur, on, on the CapEx front. And I suppose that, you know, you could look at that as a, from an investor's perspective with slightly nervy eyes that everything remains very, very tight. But um, if we skip back like a year ago to the, um, some of the emergency measures that were being brought in, they, I mean, BT is probably the, probably the greatest beneficiary of the super deduction tax, which, which allowed companies to, um, uh, Basically, it gave them a, a sort of twenty-five percent uh, bonus on everything, uh, every, all plant and qualifying plant and machinery uh, that they invested in, both in the in the most recent fiscal fiscal year and the one we're in now. So it's kind of a no-brainer for them, even if with inflation running hot, to to double down on on a plan they already had in place. So you know, it doesn't change for me the the, the commoditized nature of the business they're in, but. You know, this, it does make it. It does make sense for them to be investing heavily. Um, and I mean, the point Arthur made on, on, on you know where, where internet um, spending comes in a in a household budget now, it probably is a bit more, um, a bit more solid and a bit more premiumized. If um, I'm allowed to use that word, Julian. Yeah, you, you, you banned it. You banned it um, <laughs> this morning. Um, in the you know in the sort of pecking order of of kind of must have essential um, items, but um... there's the other silver lining I guess for BT right now, of course, is the pension deficit, which uh, rising gilt yields are, are not always a great time for many people, but for BT are quite helpful. Of course, if we were to have an economic deterioration, one might assume that that gilt uh, trend might reverse. But uh, let's let's turn to turn to the uh, the activists, you know. Um, uh, uh, John mentioned the new stake in Vodafone earlier this week, but that seems to be a bit more of a, a silent partner for now. But you know, Vodafone has, and BT both have uh, people on the board now. You are know, looking to shake things up a bit. Obviously, Vodafone is trying to divest businesses fairly quickly. Um, what, what do we think the the end game is is here? Is it you know, a, uh, in both cases, a slim down business focusing more on core markets? Is it? You know, spin-offs, that kind of thing. Do we have any kind of sense of what what the companies, what the activists might be might be looking for? Well, yeah. So BT, it's Patrick Drahi, who's a uh, Israeli French businessman um, who has a company Altis, um, and he has like a twelve to eighteen percent stake. I think for it's probably slightly different. Like BT, its global business, um, which shrunk last year, seems like they could maybe be looking to sort of dispose of the global business they've obviously already um uh done the joint venture with uh bt sport and discovery which is the most obvious one so it's probably less sort of corporate activity at bt um than there potentially would be at vodafone just because vodafone's sort of a more sprawling company and if yeah vodafone it looks like well obviously the italian business has already been had a bid for it which they turned down and i mentioned earlier in the spanish business so I think in Vodafone, if you maybe you would see the 
and maybe this is what Sivian is saying, is that maybe you sell off the Italian and Spanish businesses, which both saw revenue um, shrink last year, and then focus more on the core markets, which obviously with the three tie up in the UK, it sees they see that as one of them. And then well, despite the disastrous act German acquisition Julian mentioned earlier, I think Germany would probably be another one of those core markets. And then they're very keen on growing in Africa as, as well. So I, I don't know what conversations are going on in the background, but um, clearly these investors taking stakes in these companies means they expect them to generate value for them in the in the long run. Probably if you're from an investor perspective, you're going to be pleased about these people taking these stakes in both BT and Vodafone. I think the tricky thing though is that they're just like tankers. They're so it takes so long to turn around these businesses. Technology moves forward, and who do you know? Like you don't know what's going to happen again in the future. Like BT's invested like up to fifteen billion in upgrading into fiber optics, and then I don't know. Elon Musk puts a bunch of satellites into space to do Starlink, and suddenly he's like beaming Wi-Fi down to everyone. I think that would, in the like medium to long term, like it just seems stuff moves on, and these companies have already invested huge amounts of money in five G and Vodafone's case, and like BT and Open Reach, and then suddenly some new bit of technology comes along, and the way we all communicate with each other changes massively, which is probably why they are not insanely expensive businesses because it's just like they move slowly and then other stuff moves faster than them and then they're sort of left behind let's let's move on to um to the macro and and um inflation supply chains things like that you know they're still very much at the forefront of investors minds of of everyone's minds really obviously cpi inflation in the uk hit nine percent this week uh andrew bailey attracting plenty of uh, negative headlines again not not without reason I suppose well, what's what's changed maybe in the past couple of uh, months or not changed, but come to the fore a little bit more is, is the uh, the kind of the dreaded stagflationary fears, you know, where we, we're looking at, you know, the Bank of England's inflation report. They're sort of, you know, trying to do what they can or they say they're trying to do what they can with regards to inflation. But at the same time, they're conscious of, you know, a recession might be coming down the line as well. Why don't we start by looking at, you know, Obviously, what we want to do is work out what this means for for companies themselves. One thing, Arthur, you looked at uh, last week in last week's edition was productivity gains and, and companies, you know, who've already been through a few quarters of inflationary pressures or longer in some cases, and what what they've been doing to try and mitigate that, and also who those companies are. Um, yeah. So there's the way. So the way I was thinking about it was um, the companies that have already been under a bit of inflationary pressure because these supply chain issues have been going on for a while now, have been sort of responding by or responding by sort of improving their operational efficiency. Either they are consolidating warehouses where they can store everything together in the same place or um, investing in machinery or technology to sort of improve the production process and make it faster and cheaper. And to sort of find those businesses, I looked at the difference between gross and operating margins and tried to find the companies where they were closing that gap because your gross margin might fall a bunch because costs of labor and raw materials goes up a lot and that's within reason somewhere out of companies hands but um if that gap is closing it means that they're improving sort of the operational efficiency um side of the businesses um and then a few of the companies that like um games workshop was a good example of a company who've been doing this um they managed to narrow that gap and although games workshop 
their margins fell last year. Their gross margin fell by six percentage points because um, they're shipping these little f- figurines around. They like they make these. Um, if you guys haven't heard of them, they make these little fancy figurines that you can play with. Um, and they produce them all in Nottingham. Then they ship them to distribution centers. One of them is in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, and the cost of doing all that shipping and stuff um, had dropped their gross margins. Also, they increased their headcount and were paying people more money. Um, so that also hit gross margins. But um, they sort of narrowed that gap between the gross margins and the operating margins. And like, what, for example, one of the things they did was investing in new technology in the Memphis, like packing technology in the Memphis distribution center. Um, and they had like 5 million of backlogs um, in November, but they managed to clear them by January with this new investment. So it's like a good example of a company that has sort of been under pressure and then has responded by making their company more efficient. A bad example, although slightly exceptional example, would be like British Airways, which is um, they have some issues and then they fire 10,000 of their employees and then it's suddenly demand comes back for their product and they can't find people to um, man these planes. And British Airways has now had to um, like cancel a bunch of flights um, in the going forward into the summer because they can't find people to man these planes. I think that the companies that sort of respond to this by like redundancies or cutting wages, etc., it's definitely very sort of short-term thinking. And if you can respond to rising wage inflation by investing in um, technology to make your your work is more efficient that actually will make the sort of um if you can make your work more productive paying more money isn't really an issue like they're still going to be producing more um and like amazon has just launched a, which has been absolutely hammered by wage inflation and um, is making a retail loss in north america for the first time since 2015 has launched a one billion pound venture fund to invest in um like startups that can help improve efficiency and there's like weird like robotic arms with like ai technology and stuff to work alongside people like amazon's always at the forefront of doing weird technological investments but um i guess the fingers crossed for me is that rising wage inflation will actually drive investment and productivity growth and for investors it's about maybe finding the companies that are tackling this through innovation rather than just through like firing lots of people I suppose there's always the question of timing, though, on that as well. Like Walmart, we spoke about earlier this week, they, they've said in their results, uh, you know, they're investing a lot in CapEx in exactly that kind of thing, trying to improve efficiencies. But, you know, the, the bottom line was very much a reduction in growth they're already seeing right now as a result of these inflationary pressures. So, you know, sometimes that, that immediate uh, bottom line is fo- being focused on understandably more than the long-term plans. But if you're a long-term investor, yeah, you can perhaps refo- afford to wait and... Uh, reap the benefits well that's the problem isn't it with capital spending because you it takes 90 percent of effort to produce 10 percent of gain doesn't it so you, economically yeah you could they could wait seven years before they see any any benefit from it but um that's why it's always better to burn your factory down and then rebuild it because it's cheaper than replacing the capital stock well, if we start sitting out, i don't think we know where we are in <laughs> tough times indeed but, uh, I, I thought that arthur your, i mean the piece is really interesting you drew a parallel with um and i mean different era we we keep coming back to the comparison with the late 70s early 80s because i suppose the inflationary you know and some of the geopolitical backdrop but you you looked at ford and how they their improved productivity drive 
lifted their their sales per employee ratio considerably in the in the mm-hmm. 80s and that actually on a long term horizon that was a that was an, a, a brilliant investment if you had made it in the sort of the teeth of of that efficiency drive in the early 80s it's something like the nine ninefold return over five years it was lee, lee Coco, wasn't it who did that i think chief executive at the time. Your, your knowledge of industrial titans is much better than mine. Well, I can't I know. I mean, what else do you read? These <laughs> exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, I know that the, like, the union, the union question there was is very different today to today, and arguably Labour has a you know a smaller bargaining chip. You know that throws in a different element to the equation. But um, but yeah, if you're a long term investor, which when that's what we write about, it's not just focusing on the, the sort of day by day trading gains or losses. I, I don't think it's I don't think it's clutching at straws to focus on that as a silver silver lining, which is I mean, yeah. The other nice lesson from history I found out the other day. So the Industrial Revolution, I think people always the steam engine was patented by Watt in the um, late like the late late eighteenth um, century. But then it was the 1833 Factory Act that basically stopped people from employing children um, from the ages, like, I guess, like 12 year olds are working in factories back then. And also it limited the amount of time that workers could be forced to work in factories. And so it was like 60 years or whatever after this steam engine was patented that then all the factories started using um, steam power in their factories because they like, well, we can't use children anymore. So we'll, we'll use steam instead. So actually there's a situation where when the your sort of labor becomes more expensive or the amount of labor around gets restricted, then you're like forced into making these innovative changes. And then obviously industrial revolution is increases worker productivity like hugely. So yeah. lots of good examples from history where rising wages actually makes companies more efficient. So yeah. that's a but actually, it might be a permanent situation because if, like me, you're a devotee of Freight Waves magazine, <laughs> um, there's I was about a, to yeah make the segue from child yeah. labour to uh, overseas, <laughs> overseas workforces. Well, because there's this thing they've there's this idea that um, the the reason that we enjoyed such prosperity over the last thirty years was because there was a, a buffer of goods and labour that could produce things cheaply. So you had. Uh, populations in Asia that, that you didn't have to pay a huge amount. Raw materials were generally quite cheap in the 90s after the end of the Cold War. And the supply chains have developed in order to take advantage of that. And uh, what freight waves um, point out is that the cost of doing everything might be permanently higher now because you have far less um, employable cheap labor in many markets, say in Asia. and um, there's also an interesting point about uh, how ESG regulations are also starting to impose on how, how you can ship run things around the, the globe. So it's not just a, a kind of investing concept that we sort of look at in, in the abstract. It's actually starting to affect the way that people are doing business um, all around the world. So I, I thought that was quite a, an interesting point. I read that at five o'clock this morning when the Germans woke me up in the, my youth hostel. <laughs> I will uh, skim over that, and because uh, uh, we we do all sort of think about, don't we, about you know when supply chains improve, you think oh we're out of the pandemic and now Chinese lockdowns, you think after that, after that, but but you're right, it may just be we have we have to get used to this uh, this new world, this deglobalized world, and um, everything that means for um, for companies, for economies. Um, let's let's leave or park inflation for for the moment, but only insofar as to to say that 
you know, the the monetary policy reaction to that ha- has um, uh, caused some uh, concerns this week. I think it's probably best for our um, listeners' uh, blood pressures if we don't go into uh, too much detail, perhaps, on the Bank of England. But but what we have seen in the past couple of weeks, you know, with the US and the Fed, you know, going to hike rates a lot more with a bit of a flight to safety as well, is the dollar strengthen- strengthening a lot uh, against sterling and other currencies. That has meant more sterling weakness. And... We're already seeing, we're you know, we're seeing right now, even before all this, a lot of a lot of interest in UK companies from overseas buyers and also from private equity, and in particular, we've seen that again this week. Um, Contour Global, uh, the deal there, HomeServe, uh, just today as we uh, as we speak, um, has firmed up its own, well, its takeover effectively. So, I mean, you know, there's been a lot of talk about this over the past maybe 18 months, that kind of thing. It does seem to be accelerating even more now. Private equity is interested in the UK. The valuations are better, perhaps, it's fair to say, in the UK than, than elsewhere. Julian, maybe we start with you because you've been writing about HomeServe this morning. Just your your thoughts on the PE interest in, in UK companies. It's an interesting one. It's a bit of a paradox, actually, because we're five months into the year. Um, yes, I got that right. And... Um, the actual level of deals has has slowed down dramatically from last year. So uh, there was something like twenty three billions worth of deals in the top ten, and so far this year it's not even broken four, uh, not even broken six billion. Um, so it is. It's kind of a a year of two halves. We might see it going a bit higher as the year progresses. Uh, share valuations are now getting to the level where where public companies in the UK are very very discounted to almost everywhere else, even the even though that um, you know Wall Street is also being hammered, uh, but yeah, so the trend seems to be d- distinctly towards buying, buying up uh, UK PLC with with private equity money, and also they've been. It doesn't seem to have affected. The thing I came across today was it doesn't seem to have affected any kind of fundraising for it. So, whatever the market turbulence has been in the last three or four months, um, private equity firms are still accessing quite significant amounts of syndicated loans from banks um and i think that's quite a telling detail i mean if they if they really are uh armoring them uh, armored up to to do more more deals then we should see quite a lot more in the in the second half i think that's definitely a, a definitely a something to look out for i think yeah i think it's it's all about time horizons at the moment for for the pe takeover story because on the one hand you've got all this money they raised last year when times were happier and there's loads of liquidity sloshing around um but in an inflationary environment that's just cash whose value is eroding away now so they will have identified lots of companies and yes the picture is now obscured by you know all the inflationary pressures or you know or slowdown in in economic growth or recession but if you're taking a three to five year time horizon which lots of PE funds do then it just makes sense to kind of look through that and deploy some of that that cash now. And then at the same time, I think you have, you know, publicly listed companies, they are facing quite a difficult year or two ahead. I mean, earnings are probably going to miss expectations this year. If you're you're managing a public company, I mean, my sense is that you, you know, you, you might want to, to do this out of the, out of the public eye. And, um, you know, if there's a, if there's a bid opportunity, before you which is a decent premium it's much more attractive to be doing this out of the glare of public markets than um than sort of hanging in there and watching your share price slide while um investors get more and more bearish about the about the outlook so 
yeah, this kind of this time mismatch, I think. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I think there's going to be loads more um, deals. Coming well, you, we can see with home service that they, the, the chief executive and his wife own 12% of the company. Yeah. So you think, well, they don't want to sit on a depreciating yeah. uh, asset. So you know, selling up at a 70% premium is probably the best possible deal in that sense, isn't yeah. it? Uh, yeah, that's a, a chunky uh, premium. As you, as you say, we, we have had a, a few bits in our pages <laughs> this week talking about some of the perhaps you know slightly more subpar Offers coming in, uh, Randall and Quilter being one mentioned in the bear bull column. Uh, and that obviously can be a frustration, can't it? You know, if you are an investor uh, in, in public markets with yourself a long-term time horizon, you know, and you're being denied effectively the opportunity to, to see those things um, play out. Uh, wh- one interesting thing on this front I did see from Schroeder's uh, uh, a couple of months ago, I think, on, on talking about overseas takeovers, private equity takeovers in the UK market. Um, uh we seem to keep returning to Germany this week, but uh, over the 10 years to the end of last year, there were actually private equity accounted for a larger proportion of, of uh, um, takeovers in Germany than they did over here. So I think sometimes perhaps we, we think this is a UK-only story, but it really is happening everywhere. I mean, KKR, I suppose, another example, um, Contour Global this week, uh, they, they've been you know making their presence felt in UK markets, but equally, you know, they've been, they attempted to buy Telecom Italia the other week, didn't they, and uh, which didn't quite work out. So this... You know, this dry powder is being spent all over the world. And uh, unfortunately, if you're a public investor, you just have to um, often you have to have to like it or lump it if you're, um, you know, if one of your companies is uh, is involved. But the German point is quite interesting, isn't it? Because one of the reasons there is that trend is because there's a lot of German companies with very big family stakes. And um, often those conglomerate structures don't go anywhere in terms of share prices because they tend to be sort of they have lots of cross holdings and there's there's never any movement and uh, so actually selling out to a pe company um is one way of generating you know your <clears throat> inheritance tax bill if you own it but also because the the institutions over there have become far more um open to the idea so it's like german banks are starting to fund it themselves and and they have a fast collection of savings that they can just shove into into private equity takeovers without affecting anything on their balance sheets yeah Obviously, Julian, you had you had this conversation at four a.m. over breakfast in the gym and YMCA today. So yeah, actually, yeah. no, I'm, I'm buzzing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> okay, I think that's uh, all we have time for this week. But before we go, I'm going to uh, hand back over to Arthur, who's going to talk a little bit about our new newsletter, The Squeeze. Uh, thanks, Dan. Uh, yeah, so The Squeeze is a newsletter um, that sort of I write, but with the help of other colleagues, um, and it's for this week, we are, it comes out every Friday morning, um, so tomorrow morning, recording on Thursday, um, and this week it's sort of touching on a topic that we've discussed on the podcast, but about how rising wages can actually lead to productivity growth, um, and there will be an article every Friday, plus there'll be a sort of selection of news stories from the week that we think will interest the readers. Fantastic. Keep a lookout for that in your inboxes, and if you haven't signed up, please do. You can find it on our website. Companies and Market Show was hosted by Dan Jones and edited and produced by me, John Rogers. Don't forget to head on over to Apple Podcasts, drop us a rating and review. We'd love to hear from you. Before we finish, here's a little bit of Chris Dillo speaking to Mary McDougall on the IC Interview podcast. I hear you're a big fan of country music and specifically of Hank Williams. Jumbo line, a crawfish pine, a feely gumbo. 
I wondered what you think country music can tell us about the state of the US economy, to, to bring it back to topic. Well, you know, that is actually a far more intelligent question than, than you might think. Because uh, music is a sociological document. Um, for example, Bruce Springsteen's album Born in the USA, released in 1985, told us about deindustrialization and about the threats to American identity coming from the, um, the sense of American decline. He was onto it a lot, lot earlier than politicians and your hillbilly elegy uh, guff. You know, so in that sense, music tells us something. Similarly, the popularity of grill music um, in inner cities tells us about the, the violence and, and dangers that the urban youth uh, are, are, con are confronted with. So music does tell us something. And the thing about country music in America is that on the one hand, it's incredibly diverse, but on the other hand, American radio in particular plays only a fraction of what there is out there. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't play your Sturgill Simpson very much or your Billy Strings, and it, it plays very, very few women artists. What it tends to be dominated by is men in hats singing uh, about beer and pickup trucks and such like. And what that tells us is partly that there are contrasting trends in America between, on the one hand, the, the diversity of, of ideas and identities, but on the other hand, the urge to suppress that diversity and have us monopolized by a particular identity. But on the other hand, this sort of cliched, hackneyed country music um, does hint that there is an assertion of traditional masculinity in the face of threats to that masculinity coming, for example, from, um, from economic decline and in particular, the fact that there's much less role for you know, semi-skilled and unskilled male workers than there was 40, 50 years ago. That was Chris Dello speaking to Mary McDougall on the IC Interview podcast. Go and check that out on the Investors Chronicle podcast feed. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.